If you want to turn there, open your Bibles there. Uh, just to mention Christmas again, I'm not going to try to make this psalm into a, a Christmas message. That's for next week. But all of the Old Testament is pointing us to the coming of Christ. You know, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judah with no prior notice. You know, as we read earlier, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And, of course, the wise men from the east uh, knew about the birth of Christ, and even King Herod knew enough to call the chief priest and to find out what was going on at this time. What's all this commotion about? Psalm 118 speaks of one who's coming in the name of the Lord, but he's going to be rejected by men, and that was the Lord's doing. So his very rejection points us to him as the coming one. And in this psalm, in verse 17 here, it says, I shall not die but live. And for centuries, the church has interpreted that as ultimately referring to the resurrection of Christ. So some of this psalm will be familiar to you and some may not be. But what I want to do today is run through the psalm real quick and read the verses and then recap the teaching of this psalm at the end. And we'll finish the study by looking at how the New Testament interprets Psalm 118. And I pray that this study will be a blessing for all. Now, there are many voices in this psalm, many different voices. And I thought it would be really neat to make this into a responsive reading, but I didn't have time to even trying to figure out who all these voices are. We didn't have time for the preparation, but those who are able, if you would stand, please. I'm only going to read the first nine verses, and then we'll go through the other verses as we come to them. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is at my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Father, we thank you that Christ has come bringing healing for our souls. And we thank you for this psalm written so long ago, Lord. And we pray that you teach us from it, Lord. Help us to see wonderful things from your word. And Lord, may Jesus Christ be glorified in all that we do and say today. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 118 is composed as a hymn of praise by a one who has survived a dangerous crisis, and so we'll call him the, the celebrant. 
But there are many voices. Uh, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. This seems to be the voice of a singer or a cantor calling the congregation, you know, to, to praise and worship. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, other versions say things like, His loving kindness is everlasting, or His steadfast love endures forever. And these differences are just the translators of the Bible trying to bring this Hebrew writing into our understanding today into ways that we can understand it. But they're all saying the same thing. And then this hymn begin, or continues in verse 2. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. This is the voice of the congregation. His mercy endures forever. Verse 3, let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. The house of Aaron stands for the priest, so this is the priest praising him. Verse 4, let those who fear the Lord now say, well, let's say this together, his mercy endures Let's do it one more time. Mercy endures forever. Praise God, his mercy endures forever. So verses 2 to 4 that we just read there are a call for thanksgiving for the entire community, for Israel, for the priest, and for those who fear the Lord. If we were in the synagogue somewhere, we would be those who fear the Lord, unless you happen to, to be Jewish. Now the Lord's steadfast love calls for the thanksgiving of the entire community, I'll remind you how the book of Psalms ends, the very last verse. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord and praise the Lord. You know, it's, it's helpful to me when uh, things of this world begin to overwhelm me and, and all, and they do sometimes. It, it's helpful to me to just stop whatever I'm doing and, and just praise the Lord and just thank Him. And that, that brings a, a peace and it, it, it sets the world back in order if we do that. To praise the Lord puts us in our rightful place and it puts God, you know, well, it doesn't put him, but God is in the rightful place and it puts us in the right place and helps us to have a right perspective. It does me anyway. When I'm trying to do four or five things at the same time and none are working or I'm watching the news, oh my. <laughs> So that's helpful to me. So uh, in verse 5 here, a single voice takes over. But this is no ordinary speaker. He says, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. A broad place means that God gave him room. He has room to move. It's sin that binds us, that restricts us. You know, unbelievers uh, like to think that Christianity is a set of rules and a bunch of things that we can't do, but uh, being a Christian gives you absolute freedom or, or gives you freedom, and it's sin that binds us and, and restricts us. So he was in distress. He called on the Lord for help, and the Lord answered him and rescued him, and this is his testimony at this point. But as we'll see here, he is testifying for the entire community. He's, he's testifying for Israel. Now, as we read the Psalms, they give us words for our own prayers. And uh, you know, as we read this, I'm, I'm sure all of us have, have called on the Lord at some time in our distress, maybe several times every day. 
So verses 6 to 9 give us a contrast of reliance on the Lord with either the threat or the help of human sources. Verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the most wonderful truth a person can know. The Lord is on my side. The Lord is for me. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I like to think more that I want to be on God's side, but I'm just reading what's here. It says, the Lord is on my side. In Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? So, Verse 7, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. Verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Verse 9, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So these verses open up the marvelous possibility of living by faith instead of fear, instead of living by fear of man. You know, our strength is vulnerable to the power and to the threat of adversaries and of intimidation. It's better not to put our confidence in human help, even if it belongs to princes, as this verse says. So those verses 6 to 9 are most comforting to me today and in this time of uh, political uncertainty and uncertainty concerning our government. You know, I think about how other nations have lived with uh, uncertain governments and shaky governments all of my life. I look at these other countries, but our country has always had stable government, and, you know, this is the first time that it it seems a little shaky, at least to me. So these verses are, are very comforting to me, and they direct me back to putting my confidence and my faith in the Lord and, and not in man and not in a politician or not in a government or, or even in a country. Now, in verses 10 to 14, uh, we'll notice a repetition of the name of the Lord. This identifies the real source of strength that enables the speaker to resist the power of the surrounding nations. And here he is speaking for his people, his people who are with him. Verse 10, all nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Now, all nations doesn't uh, refer to a coalition of enemies at that present time or something. Uh, But this is what we see in the world throughout history opposition to God. This is the opposition that you see to Israel, opposition to the people of God. Verse 11, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. Verse 14, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. So verse 14 appears in the song of Moses in Exodus 15, where uh, the Lord had delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. And, And you see this in Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. So there's much in this psalm that uh, takes us back to an understanding of the Exodus and the steadfast love of the Lord and their deliverance from uh, death. But more than the Exodus is remembered here. 
And the way this psalm speaks of the Lord's salvation, the language here in verses 10 to 14 that I just read can include the whole history of the Lord's preservation of Israel in the midst of nations, and especially uh, during the Babylonian exile and their return to, to the land. So in verses 15 and 16, we have the right hand of the Lord. Verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So here we see the reaction of the righteous as opposed to the all nations of verse 10. Righteousness is a matter of our relation to the Lord. So as a group, we see in this psalm that the righteous are the opposite of the nations that do not fear the Lord, that do not fear God. Verse 16, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So this is just another expression for the Lord's power exercised among human beings and exercised among nations. Verses 17 and 18 describe the uh, true measure of salvation. Verse 17, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. So let's think about who this could ultimately be referring to. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The immediate answer seems to be Israel, that Israel would not cease to be. But we'll look at this a little further at the end of the study. Verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So this is a view of the distress of the nations, you know, the divine punishment that God administered to them. It reminds us of Jeremiah and the other prophets who spoke of the Lord's judgment. But the Lord did not give Israel over to death, though they have been chastened severely. And verses 19 to 20 have a request for entrance. It begins with alternating voices there, a challenge and a counter-challenge. It says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. So here I believe we see the coming one requesting permission to enter. You know, the King Jesus himself entered the gates of righteousness solely on his own merits as they were perfected through suffering as we see in Hebrews 2.10. And Hebrews 24, 9.24 tells us that, that Christ entered, he entered this gate on our behalf, you know, that, that we could go in. Verse 21, I will praise you for you have answered me and become my salvation. So here is the celebrant with the community performing the ritual of thanks. Now verses 22 to 24, these will be familiar verses. The community acknowledges salvation as a wondrous act of the Lord. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So the point of this verse is the reversal of what was expected. The deliverance of the celebrant was as much a surprise as finding a stone that had been cast aside by builders as useless, and this stone turns out to fit exactly and perfectly as the cornerstone 
the most important part of the building, the most important component. But why was he rejected? You know, why was the stone rejected? It's because he was in the world in the name of the Lord, and he represents God, and he represents the power of the Lord. Verse 23, this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So clearly his deliverance is of the greatest importance to the congregation. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So the Lord has made a day, a special time and occasion whose content and character are determined by what we're reading about here. This is a time for the community to celebrate and, and be glad. This is a special day, and it's a time for the community to pray and to hope in its own salvation. Verse 25, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So we see the community praying for its own salvation. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And as we talked about earlier, the Bible tells us to bless the Lord and the way we bless him is through our worship, through our praise, through our thanksgiving. Then we have here in verse 27a, a corporate confession of faith. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Verse 27b, this is a ritual instruction. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So this is an offering to the Lord. Verse 28, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. So the Lord has given light into this dark world. Verse 29, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. So just to go back and, and think about this psalm a little bit more, um, this portrays what happened to the celebrant in an escape from death and that this is a work of the Lord. And uh, this is the significant identity of the speaker is that he is one who comes in the name of the Lord. And everything he says about himself is a way of saying the Lord has become my salvation that we see in verse 14. The right hand of the Lord, verses 15 and 16, is the intervening action of God in human affairs. The righteous understand what happened in the celibate's rescue, and they themselves celebrate it as a sign of salvation. So let's think about the question, who is this who comes in the name of the Lord? Because the psalm doesn't name him. It's the one who, uh, with the congregation, who's coming with a congregation of the people of the Lord, and he observes a thanksgiving on the day of the Lord that turns the rejected one into the chief cornerstone. Well, this psalm doesn't name him, but it's only when we look in the New Testament that we find out who this is. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is identified as the one who comes in the name of the Lord in all four Gospels. And verse 26 is used by the crowds to uh, praise and acclaim Jesus. You remember when Jesus did his triumphal entry, they call it, into Jerusalem. And the crowds and the people all said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is recognized as the son of David. 
In Luke's writing of the triumphal entry, Jesus is called the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And we see in John, he's called the King of Israel. So this messianic reading of the psalm uh, not only supplies the identification here that it's Jesus in verses 22 and 3, but, but those verses offer an um, allegorical interpretation of his destiny, of Jesus' destiny, and his crucifixion and his resurrection. You know, Jesus is the rejected stone that becomes the chief cornerstone. In Acts 4.11, Peter tells the Sanhedrin, and he's speaking of Jesus. You remember the Sanhedrin brought him in for a healing that was done. He said, this stone which was rejected by you builders has become the chief cornerstone. And we might also think of the parable of the vine dressers where the wicked vine dressers killed the owner's son. And Jesus applied that to himself. He applied verses 22 and 23 to himself in the account. Peter, in verse, uh, second, or 1 Peter 2, 7, he gives a messianic interpretation to it. He says, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 8, 118 teaches us that the very rejection of Jesus is a moment of messianic disclosure. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You know, God knew exactly what was going to happen all along. The day that the Lord has made, verse 24, is the day for rejoicing in the resurrection, which is hailed as the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And then throughout centuries of interpretation, verse 17, as I pointed out earlier, that says, I shall not die but live. This has been seen as a reversal of the normal human predicament. You know, knowing that we must die affects the, the way that we live in many conscious and even subconscious ways. You know, knowing that this life is going to end and that we're going to die someday. But the resurrection of Christ changes our view fundamentally. You know, if we think about the resurrection of Christ and eternal life, we have a hope. You know, we have a hope that unbelievers don't have, and it affects the way that we view life. It affects the way we uh, face every threat, you know, every crisis. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And so John Calvin said we should meditate on Colossians 3.3 when we read this psalm. You know, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And then, this last note, the resurrection of Christ, raising Jesus from the dead, is the foundation and the keystone of the coming kingdom of God. But this was not done with the free choice and the approval of the human community. You know, we didn't originate this salvation. In fact, human beings are basically against it, you know. Jesus is present in the world as one contradicted and 
rejected as we human beings go about building our own lives and, and building our own world. The risen Christ is not the acceptable Christ. So it's in the rejection that, that God, in this rejection of Christ, calls us to the transformation of repentance. You know, the world's stance toward the gospel is no different today than it was when Jesus came. But the marvelous thing about it is the, the one to whom, to whom our human instincts and our wisdom reject, God has, in spite of us, uh, given us salvation. He has come for our salvation and made Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone. And that's the message of Psalm 118. And it's worthy of our uh, meditation and thanksgiving to the Lord, uh, you know, and to realize that his mercy endures forever. And to anyone who's here or watching on television, uh, anyone who hasn't confessed Christ as Savior, uh, I urge you to repent, you know, to change your direction, to believe the truth. Here we have Jesus written about thousands of years ago, and, and it happens just as God said, because this is the eternal word of God, you know, in a verse that used to be familiar with, with everyone, and I hope still is today, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, I urge everyone, if you've not done it, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and be saved. And 